Welcome back, brothers and sisters, and we're going to continue our talk on looking at the role and the beliefs and the theology of men and women in Islam. And I'm going to start this session with a quote. It's a quote by, uh, from a book that ha- has just compiled ideas from the modernist Muslim woman, and I just want to read this quote to you. And I, I, would be, I, I can't get feedback from you, but I would love to know what you all thought, thought of this quote. But it says this, We Muslim women can walk into the modern world with pride, knowing that the quest for dignity, for democracy and human rights, for full participation in the political, social affairs of our country stems from no imported Western value, but is a true part of the Muslim tradition. And that's the belief. That's what the modernist Muslim person wants to uphold. And that's what all of those of us who live in the West, our governments and our society believes or wants to believe Islam is. And for those of you who live in Muslim lands, I think you'll be able to see that's most likely, and we know just by how it looks like in a Muslim woman's life and a Muslim man's life, this is really not how it looks like when it's practiced on the ground. You really don't see the, the value of woman. Um, in many parts of the Muslim world. And it's, I say it's because, well, I believe the Quran says um, uh, is the reason for that. Let's start with Islam. Do you remember when we said that a woman's identity is really her relationship to her family? So she's wife, she's mother, she's sister, she's daughter. So her identity starts with family. It was interesting, when I was living in Turkey, that was many years ago in my 20s, and I was living in Turkey and I I was um, meeting Muslim women there and I was staying with um, some Christians who were living there as well, both Turkish and also uh, expatriate from uh, the Western world. And um, we were really intrigued whenever we went into a Muslim woman's home, her house was spotless, the most beautiful food they made, uh, the most amazingly spotless kitchens. And she spent hours cleaning her windows and making her place absolutely spotless. And I was talking to someone who, um, an American lady who knew fluent Turkish, and I was asking her about this, that uh, it's interesting, whatever home I go into, the the women are so hospitable and they they give so much time and effort into making their food, their homes are spotless. And she said, oh, but Beth, there's a sad side to this. The sad side of this is that the reason they do this, because this is the only place they get value. It is the only place that they get any sense of ennoblement and and respect. It is the one place that is their area that they get respect in, which is one of the reasons why they go almost overboard in how they run their homes and how they do their kitchens and so on and cooking their food. And there's competition between women in in that culture often on who makes the best food and and, uh, women will debate with each other on how to clean the dishes even. And time and time and again, when I'm in a Muslim home, they say, no, 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 Betty, you don't clean dishes that way, you clean it this way. Because for them, it's, it's, it's where they get their pride, how they do things so well. But I think there's a sad side to that, that they're not just an in and of themselves um, valued, which is why they invest so much time into their homes. So for the Muslim woman, it's, it's family first, And then, of course, the next stage where she gets identity is marriage. And for the Christian woman, it's your relationship with Christ first. That's actually where you get your identity, your relationship with Christ first. Now, 
I have back in London heard Muslim women say, oh, it's my religion, it's my deen. Deen is the technical term that they will use to um, uh, talk about the practices of their faith or how they live out their faith, um, how they, their faith makes sense in, in, in the real world. And she talks, uh, one Muslim friend I was talking to, she says, oh, this is my deen. And so my religion is the most important thing. That's what gives me identity and value. And I thought that's interesting because whilst I like that idea, I actually don't think you're necessarily going to find that in the Quran again. I think it's a lovely idea. I think you'll find it in this book, the Bible. So I always refer my Muslim friends back to the Bible because so often what they long for, what they want is found in here, not found in the Quran. So you have the, the Muslim woman family marriage for the Christian woman, relationship with Christ, and it can be marriage and singleness. Both are equal in the sight of God. Marriage and singleness are revered as both as precious in the sight of God, where God can work mightily through a married woman and mightily through a single woman. And that's a very important theology in the Bible because because it shows a woman is valuable at her core. The same same applies to men. If you're a married man or a single man, you are valuable in the sight of God. It's our cultures often that sometimes will help make it so that we're not so valuable, but that's a cultural issue, not a biblical issue. It is, however, a Quranic issue where your identity is really wrapped up on whether you're married or single, and that goes for both men and women. So family, marriage, um, for the Muslim, for the Christian, relationship with Christ, marriage and singleness equal. Then for the, for the Muslim, we go down to looking at Muhammad's wives. Muhammad's wives are, are seen as the mother of all believers. Surah 33 talks a lot about Muhammad's wives, chapter 33. Uh, and they are seen to be the ones that Muslim women look to, to know how to live today. When Muhammad died, um, Surah 33, 53 says that none of his widows could remarry. They had to stay as widows. And so they're really revered and put onto a special pedestal. And so Muhammad's wives are, you look to, or the Muslim person looks to, to know, uh, the Muslim woman looks to, to know how to live today. But for the New Testament woman, for the Christian woman, what does she do? She doesn't go to, uh, well, she goes to Jesus, but he didn't have wives. What does she do? She goes to how he treated women and also the New Testament uh, itself, the, the teachings of the New Testament. And again, the value that to a point where a man has to die for his wife, or at least be willing to, that kind of love is what is preached in the New Testament. A total comparison with Islam, where it doesn't have any any, not once, not once does it refer in the Quran that a man is to love his wife. However, be aware when you read the modern translations of the Quran, certainly back in, or any, any English modern translations, and I'd be intrigued to know if it was in many other languages in the world, but in the modern English translations of the Quran, they will say that God, Allah, put love and mercy or love and kindness between the man and the woman. But actually, in the verse, it's not love and kindness, it's, it's, uh, it's not love. Love is a modern imposition in, um, in on the text. It is actually only kindness or some sort of mercy, a sort of a warmth of affection between the man and the woman. So there's no concept of the kind of love that the Bible talks about between man and woman and the, the kind of love that Jesus has towards woman, Jesus has towards man, that um, a godly agape love that is utterly sacrificial. There's no concept of that kind of love in the Quran from Allah to his people and between a man and a woman and just uh, between brothers and sisters and so on. 
So your family, marriage, Muhammad's wives, and for Christians, you have relationship with Christ is where your main identity is. Marriage and singleness, you're equal. And we go to the New Testament teaching on woman and on man. Then for the uh, for the Muslim woman, they then go to the sayings and the beliefs and the practices of Muhammad and his teachings and also the the way his companions treated uh, treated women. And that becomes very troubling. We're going to look at that in some detail. Of course, for us Christians, we go to the biblical position of woman from old and new. And I, at one point, I'm going to show you some wonderful stories you can pull out of the Bible that deal with Islamic themes, uh, ways you can do Bible stories and Bible um, uh, studies with Muslims to show uh, the value of woman right through Old and New Testament. Then you have in Islam... You have paradise. Well, some of you might have heard about the Islamic paradise. Um, some of you will know of how carnal, how sinful, how in the sight of the biblical God, how, what a wicked, very sexual, over-sexualized place that this paradise is uh, for the Muslim. And anyone who's read the Muslim paradise, and I always say this to my Muslim friends, I say, have you actually read in the Quran and in the Hadith, the sayings of Muhammad, and in the Tafsir, the exegetes of Islam, have you you read what paradise is for you especially as a Muslim woman have you seen what the end goal was and then you describe it to them I won't say it on camera it is so disturbing but it, it but the, it's a carnal sinful kind of paradise that you can get here on earth already the kind of place that we as Christians God is going to take us out of into the perfect place the perfect heaven where we're going to live with God one day and you don't have that concept in Islam they're never going to be with God at all even according to their own theology so if family marriage Muhammad's wives Muhammad's view of woman and then paradise and how um, so her identity how she gets her value, how she's treated into that end goal. What is waiting for her? Well, (laughs) when you read the Quran, you'll see some interesting things in the Quran. You will see a very male-leaning book. When you open, first open this book, just take Surah 1 to 4. You don't need to read the whole lot. Take Surah 1 to 4. Got my Quran upside down. Read Surah 1 to 4, and you will just see, as in just those four chapters, you just recognize it just always seems to be talking to men. We're going to address that. Hold that thought. We're going to come back to that later on because this is a really important uh, uh, idea that some, even some progressive Muslims have noticed. It seems to be pro-male. What do we do with that? And it seems to be given to male for men. Paradise is for men. The whole religion is for men. Islamic marriage is for men. Everything is for men. Nothing is for women. And when I say for men, I don't mean in a, in a redeemed, transformed biblical sense. I mean in a carnal, sinful sense. It feeds male carnality. We'll unpack that a little bit more as we go on. So those are just helpful circles. With the Christian, you have relationship with Christ. You have marriage and singleness equal. Uh, we go to the New Testament to see the value of man and woman, how Jesus treated woman. You go to the whole Old and New Testament, stories of women through the Old and New Testament. And then ultimately, man and woman, side by side, are going to stand with God one day, side by side with God in heaven. That's the end goal for the Christian man and woman. But in Islam, there's none of that. And the end goal for Christian man and woman is we're going to be taken out of this sinful realm and put into the most perfect, incredible place we can't even imagine. It's so beyond our understanding. But Revelations and other books of the Bible describe it beautifully. And I tell you, 
do this comparison with Muslims. Do a comparison between the Islamic paradise, especially for women, and compare it, um, compare it to the Christian paradise. It's an incredible comparison. For the man, he feeds his sexual desires. For the, for the man, for the Muslim man, um, for, uh, not for a Christian man, for the Muslim man, he feeds his sexual desires. For the Christian man, um, all, and for the Christian woman, we're all released of any of, the, that, of sexuality on earth because heaven is so incredible. Heaven is so beyond us. We're not even going to be thinking of those things. Help the Muslim understand that. For the Muslim, they just have an extension of earth. But for Christians and for the Muslims, if they come into Christ, they'll have something that they can never even dream of um, that is so incredible, and they are with God. So that's the end goal. What I want to do now is start looking at the Quran itself. This is really important because so many people, and I, I am always surprised when I meet um, non-Muslims and who have many Muslim friends, and the non-Muslim will say, oh, but my Muslim friends say that Islam really gave them uh, 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 rights, it gave them justice, that Islam protects the woman, it protects the man, that Islam brings about guidelines and rules and regulations that help families, that help society, that if you were to implement Islamic law, uh, you would have a protected society, you would have uh, families that stay together, women and children protected, and so on. And my first response to that is always, oh, that's interesting, because I look around the world, and I look at lots of Muslim countries around the world, or countries that implement Sharia law, and I see none of that. There is not one country that has implemented Sharia law, Islamic law, and the Islamic way of life, where women and families, the vulnerable and children are protected. So, and then Muslims say, oh, that's not really Islamic law. That's how they will try to get out of it. So we have to help our Muslim friends think through their claims and think through when they say, well, that's not really Islamic. Open up the Quran and begin to show them from the Quran where actually some of the troubles we see in the Muslim world, the abuse of women and so on, um, is right here in the Quran. Now, let's begin to unpack some of those verses. I, when I teach back in London, I have a helpful list of verses that I give to all of my, uh, all of the, my students. And I'm just going to read down through this list of verses, and I'm going to give you a quick overview of what these verses say. And for those of you watching and listening, just think to yourself, wow, what is the overall impression you are getting when you look at women in Islam? Now, you might say, well, Beth, you're very biased. I am biased. I'm a Christian, and I'm a Christian who's critiquing Islam. But these verses speak for themselves. These verses are not my imposition on them. They speak for themselves. Furthermore, there are a few verses in the Quran, just a few, where there seems to be uh, some sort of kindness. We'll look at that later on. I'm not going to address them right now, but Muslims will refer to them as some kind of kindness. And we're going to look at some of what they consider the equality verses. There are two equality verses, Surah 4.1 and Surah uh, 33.35. Uh, we're going to look at those two big verses that Muslims put up as the equality verses to show a, uh, a noblement or a equality between man and woman. And then we'll unpack and show how really those equality verses fall flat on its face when you compare it to the surrounding verses or the following verses of those chapters. Let me just quickly read through this list of verses that I have. Start with a, a fairly gritty topic, and I, uh, I apologize that we do have to get into some gritty material when we look at woman and man in Islam. And it may not be um, normal in some cultures for men and women to talk about this, but the Quran talks about it, so we need to talk about it. 
Surah 2, chapter 2, ayah verse 222 or 223, it is the famous tilth verse. This tilth verse is a very sexual verse, and uh, your modernist Muslims look at this verse and they're quite appalled by it. In fact, do you remember in the last session when I was talking about Amina Wadud, and she said, with some verses of this book, we simply say no to? Well, it's this verse that she says we say no to this verse. It's on um, verse Surah 434, which allows a man to beat his wife, where she says, I'm not sure how to interpret this yet. But Surah 2, 2 to 3, she says, we simply say no. We take it out of that Quran. It is not a part of that Quran. We say no to that verse. And it is, it is a very troubling verse. It talks about how your wife is your field or your tilth. So go to your wife when and how you want. So it's all for the man. And it allows, unfortunately, for marital rape. Now, if you ever bring this concept up with a Muslim, they will laugh in your face on the whole. I've never had a Muslim understand, even modern Muslims understand, that uh, this verse, this tilth verse, this field verse, is very troubling and does not protect the woman in marriage. Compare it to the Bible, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, where a man and woman belong to one another, where they are to become one flesh, where they, they, um, they desire and they give to one another. It is a mutual, equal satisfaction. It's a very different concept than you have um, in the Islam and in Surah 2, 2 to 3. Next verse, Surah 2, 228. This is where the verse talks about how men are a degree above the woman. Now, Muslims say, oh, no, no, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean in, uh, in, in standing. It just means in roles. But actually, it's really talking about essence in these verses. Men are a degree above the woman. Surah 2, 230, there's a very strange verse here where you have, um, when, when a person is divorced in Islam, you have to then, uh, the spouse, the woman has to marry another man in order to be reconciled to the first husband. So you get divorced, the woman then has to marry another man, consummate the marriage, and then come back to the first husband. Again, I find that troubling because there's no protection of marriage. In the, in the Bible, there's a high view of marriage. Divorce is not an easy thing in Christianity. And so often Muslim friends and Muslim missionaries and Muslim debaters in London will say to me, well, Betty, you, it's very difficult for you to get divorced in the Bible. I say, good, because God protects marriage. God wants to protect marriages. Now, there are um, teachings in the Bible that address those situations. But in the Quran, it doesn't protect marriage because in order to bring about reconciliation between a broken relationship, she has to marry someone else, consummate the marriage, and come back. That does not protect relationships. It's quite a troubling verse. And Muslims don't quite know how to respond to this verse. Remember all these verses that I'm pointing out, most Muslims have never read for themselves. We have to be the ones that take these verses to them. We have to be the questioner. We often have to be the ones that think it through for the Muslim friend because the Muslims on the whole around the world do not question their own religion. And yet Jesus says very clearly, or, or the New Testament says very clearly, that we are to be critiquing the spirits. We are to be asking questions. We are to to seek and we are to find. That's a very biblical concept. So let's go on to Surah 2, 282. In Surah 2, 282, it talks about that a woman's testimony is half that as a man. So in a court of law, you need two women and you just need one man. And the Quran says the reason why you have two women is so that in case one of the women errs or makes a mistake, the other one can remind her or correct her. And I would say, are you telling me that men don't ever make mistakes? I'm pretty sure men make mistakes sometimes. 
But often uh, there's this idea that well, men, you know, they, they, women are a little bit more susceptible. They make more mistakes. And it's often in the psyche of a lot of Muslims um, that I know. And it's coming from this book here, the Quran. Um, Surah 4.3 is the big polygamy verse. So you have Surah 4 uh, verse 3. And in polygamy, it says that, uh, that a man can marry uh, up to four wives, but you have to treat them equally. It talks about the orphan girls. So it's, it's the concept that these girls are, are alone. And um, rather than saying, let's just protect the orphan girls, it seems to put them in the context that they're up for marriage. But then it says something so troubling. Most people just focus, oh, can marry four wives. That's not, a, that's not a good thing from a biblical perspective. What they fail to see is they read to the end of the chapter. When you read to the end of the chapter, it says that you can marry four wives. If you are unable to treat them equally, it says marry one or, or, and this is the key verse, the key, the, the key phrase, what your right hand possesses. It's what your right hand possesses, you can marry that. That is your slave girl. That is the one you own. All the exegetes, all the tafsir through history have translated that what your right hand possesses to be your slave woman, the woman you have enslaved. Now, recently, I've had some discussions with Muslim missionaries on this particular uh, verse. They say, well, Betty, it's only in the time of war. It's only in the time of war. I say, I don't care if it's in the time of war or if it's in the time of peace. It's still a very troubling verse because the Lord Jesus Christ would never teach such a thing. He would never teach um, about a, a man being able to take a slave girl and then marrying them. And then I say to them, that is under um, modern standards of equality and of human rights. That is a rape. That is an attack against a woman. And they said, no, 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 it's not an attack because he's married her. I say, hang on a minute. Just because you've married your slave girl doesn't mean you're not assaulting her. You are in modern terms and in biblical terms assaulting her. But, uh, but, but many Muslims don't see that because as long as you're married then it's legit. As long as you're married, the man has access to you. You have to help Muslim men work that through. You have to help them see how heinous this is and help women see that this is in their Quran. Now, what will Muslims, how will they respond? Many will say, well, what about the Old Testament? Because there's some verses in the Old Testament that seem to imply something similar. It doesn't imply something similar at all. In fact, when you start reading what the Old Testament says, there isn't an idea of where you can go in, take a slave girl, and immediately marry her and consummate the marriage. There is one event in the Old Testament where you have, they had to, they did go, there was in a time of war, they were, they waited for one month period, and then after one month, they were able to marry the women that they had caught in the time of war. It's a one-off situation. And it is not a direct edict from, all, from God himself. It is an, a, a case law. So it's if this happens or if you're in this scenario, then this is a way or this is how you deal with it. So it's not one of the Ten Commandments. But here in the Quran, it's written as if it, it would be like one of the Ten Commandments. There's no case laws. There's no if scenarios. There's no one-offs. It, it really is a general rule for all time. And it's as if it's like one of our Ten Commandments. So be careful not to equate certain experiences in the Old Testament that are dealing with issues 3,000 years ago for the time period compared to what Islam is doing, which says it's for today, and it's a very different scenario. So just be careful in how you equate and how Muslims, when they bring up certain verses in the Old Testament. So to continue on, uh, it says in Surah 4, verse 129, that you can't treat your wives equally, that a man is simply incapable of treating his wives equally. 
Uh, some modernist Muslims will say, well, that then means that we can, um, that nullifies Surah 4.3. Because if it says you have to treat them equally, but then here in this verse it says you can't treat them equally, which means then Surah 4.3 doesn't stand. And Surah 4, 129, abrogates and replaces Surah 4, 3. It's getting a little bit complex. Just go, bear with me. I just want to sort of throw you a whole lot of verses, and then we will unpack it a little bit in a little bit more detail as we go on. Inheritance, Surah 4, 11. Uh, a man receives twice the inheritance that a woman receives, and that is also applicable for today. And, of course, when I've talked about with my dear Muslim friends, they will sometimes say to me, they will say, uh, well, actually... Uh, that's because the man looks after the woman. The man is the head of the home. The man is the one who has the money. He goes to work and he protects the home. It's a very traditional approach and view of marriage. And some Christians would sign up to that too. However, I say to them, that doesn't really make sense anymore because I'm a single woman. I'm a woman who I own all of my own possessions. I don't share my wealth with anyone apart from when I give it away as the Lord wants us to. Uh, but my money is my own. I uh, When I... when my and I, I obviously don't want this to happen, but when my parents do die, they will give my brother and I equal because they see us as both needing to survive in this world. So this idea in Surah 4 verse 11 doesn't make sense for the modern context. Again, just help the Muslim friend think that through. It made sense in the 6th, 7th, 8th century, doesn't make sense for today's context. Let's continue with just a couple more verses and then we'll wind down and we'll reinvestigate this again in the next session. So then we have Surah 4.15. It emphasizes death to a lewd woman, a woman who has been immoral. And um, it talks about um, her dying, being um, uh, holed up in a room until she dies. Surah 4.24, another troubling verse. It talks about how um, it is permissible to marry. So you cannot marry women who are already married. I think, well, that's pretty good. You can't marry women who are, who are already married, except, and this is what the Quran keeps doing, except it has a get out clause all the way through for many topics except what your right hand possesses except your slave girl except the woman you own so just take the country that you happen to be in islam if islam is not uh, doesn't rule supreme in your land pretend that it does when islam comes into your land and if you live in a nation that's more muslim than anything else you may understand some of this and so Islam comes in, takes over your land. Uh, I live in a, in a, in a secular uh, land uh, where there's almost as many Muslims as Christians. We're probably not quite there yet, but we're getting there, unfortunately. And I live in that land. And if Islam comes in and sweeps through London and sweeps through Britain, all of our, the Christian girls that are married are not protected by their marriage. The moment Islam comes in and a Muslim man wants one of those married women, he can take her because she is now a zimmah. She is under the power of Islam. She is under the authority of Islam. She has to submit to Islam, as does her husband. And her mar- marriage is annulled to the Christian man, and she is brought into the household of a Muslim man. That is straight Islamic. That is straight out of the Quran. That is straight out of the life of Muhammad. It is deeply troubling when you begin to look at the life of Muhammad and you just begin to really apply the theology of this book. You're not allowed to marry orphan girls. You have to treat them equally, except the get-out clause, what the woman you own, you can treat them how you want. You can marry them how you want. You cannot marry women already married, except except if you if you're what your right hand possesses. So the woman you own, you can take. Now, some Muslims say it's just in the time of war. I say, well, that's troubling. 
because half the wars in the world are with Muslims. <laughs> so that means that the Muslim man, if he really were to apply this book, if he really were, he, there is no woman that is protected. Now let's just wrap up with this somber thought. Many of you will know of what ISIS has done in, in the last year. It's been horrifically sad what ISIS has done. Burial graves of mass bodies have been found. But also what has troubled many of the Western world, and our Western governments don't understand this, it has been what is, how the vulnerable Christian and Yazidi women and maybe Shia women have been treated when ISIS came in. And they took those women and they made them concubines and they made them sex slaves. And the world just uh, re- 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 was revolted by this. And what is very sad, folks, that is straight out of the Quran. That is a Quranic theology. And we need to help our Muslim friends know it. Because when they realize what this Quran really treats, teaches about women, they will be appalled. And the only alternative is the Lord Jesus Christ.